Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, risk and return. Before I do that, I will finish the bond chapter, uh, the math part of it. Now I can do it so that it will take about an hour, and it will be very hard. I can do it in about 15 minutes using Excel templates that I've made for you. It's up to you which way I'll do it. Uh, if you want the difficult way, I just please say so before I get started. Now, as far as other things go, first. You may have noticed that Cengage gave you a gift. It gave you 40 out of 40 on chapter seven. Uh, I didn't ask it to do that. For some reason, it just went ahead and thought, you guys are wonderful, so I'll give you a seven out of, uh, 10 out, 40 out of 40 on it. Uh, you can still go in and do it, right, because only your highest score will count, and 40 out of 40 is about as high as you can get on it. But I have no idea why it did that, but it's yours. We'll still, you'll still obviously have quizzes about it and all that, but I don't know. Anyway, now as far as the uh, midterm goes, I am hopeful that by tomorrow night I'll open up the answers to it. I have to go through each one, one by one, to go and make sure that there are no mistakes in the grading. For one thing, there's some partial credit that I give. Canvas can't do that. Canvas is an abomination hated by God and that way. And so and there's also one where the it gave the wrong answer as correct, but it marked it for the right answer, 30.64. But for some reason it said the correct answer was 30.22. And I that wasn't right, but it didn't score that as the right answer. But I'm trying to I was trying to figure out why it gave that as the right answer in its own calculation. And I finally figured it out. It was, kind of, it was kind of a simple mistake, so I got to go back and find everyone who put 30.22 and give them partial credit for that. And there are always the usual, someone accidentally put in a decimal play, point in the wrong place and got that one. I've got to go back and make sure that I fix those. And if there's so far five people, transposed two numbers. I know they had the right answer, they just put in two numbers transposed and it was wrong. And because I've done that myself, I go back and fix that. So that takes each one, that's 400, about 400 exams, I have to go through one by one through the whole exam. So that takes us, that's taken most of the weekend and I'll finish that up probably by tomorrow morning, I hope. So patience when I, your score will be a little bit better. Now the average on the exam, as it stands now, is a 76 and the median is a 78, which is pretty decent, that's pretty typical. So from there, um, we will move on to other bigger and better topics. Obviously first, we look at the numbers for the day. And we had a really nice day on Wall Street. Uh, it, it roared up in the morning first couple of trading hours were very bullish and then it just leveled off there wasn't any more good news most of that bullish sentiment 
was because earnings, a lot of the big dogs are posting their earnings this week. So in advance of that, the expectations are showing up, that those earnings on, on average earnings are going to look better than they were uh, thought to, they, they had been forecast. So that gave the, a nice little run-up for the, uh, in all of the indices. An old story about that, an old saying in the business, you buy on the rumor, you sell on the news. So in other words, the rumors are great earnings, so you buy in, and then before, right before the, the earnings are actually released, you get out of the way because you don't really know what's about to be uh, posted in those earnings. But there you are. Uh, the NASDAQ up a nice healthy 1.2%, S&P up a little less, a little more than 1%, and the Dow almost a percent. Very typical, normal kind of day. Now, as you can see, crude is staying in that trading range that it had before, 82 to 88. It's pushing a little bit towards the top end, but it tried to see how it, right about the midday, it tried to push up to that resistance at 88, and then they chickened out and got back down, back down below it. And right now it's trading at 87 and a little change on the light sweet Brent. And that's just gonna be the way it is for a while. Gasoline is, there's plenty of gasoline in the supply lines right now. So we should expect the prices to stay relatively stable. Right now around here at 339 a gallon is prevailing right in this area. We kind of figure that it'll probably stay around there for a while. The markets don't seem to have any desire to go anywhere crazy from here. Things out for the time being. Now here's an interesting thing. Bonds had a strong, the yields went up today. Yields go up, prices go down. That means that the uh, traders were getting out of bonds, which isn't surprising. There you go. It was going into equities. Yeah, taking the riskier uh, stocks, taking the riskier investments. That's a healthy sign. The market is excited. It feels good about itself. The euro appreciated, so did the pound against the dollar. Nothing spectacular at all. Euro is still below 106 to the dollar, so that's so it's not really that looks like it went up a lot today, but it didn't really do that much at all. Nothing to worry about there. And um, yeah, what is the yen was all over the place today, kind of hard to say. Now, Tokyo had a really bad opening last night, and then it just sort of slid quietly downward. It lost more than 2% for the day. That's a notable amount. And so Tokyo is in a fussy mood right now. And then London had fairly up day. It was choppy there in the late trading right before the bell. But then the bulls took a big sweep, and then the bears took a little profit at the end. But it still finished up almost a half a percent. So hey, at least Western Europe and London are in a good mood, and so are we right now. The big concerns right now, if you would listen to the news, is the markets are jittery because of the possibility of a global war. World War III around the corner. 
that's not really what the investors are seeing. Now, the street says, well, the conflict may expand a little bit, but it looks like it's going to stay contained, at least for the time being. And even if it blows up to a larger conflict, regional or global, well, that's not always bad for stock. I mean, uh, defense industry stocks tend to appreciate on the news, and consumers tend to buy more just stock up in case things get really bad. So even if we are in a position where we're about to go into a larger conflict in the Middle East, well, you know, or in Eastern Europe, it's not scaring the markets at all right now. And remember, these markets work on greed and what is going to happen in their best estimate. So if you see the markets doing well, well, that means that some of the best computers and the sharpest minds in the world think that it's going to do okay, the world economy is, or our economy anyway. So take that for what it's worth. And don't plan on uh, hiding in Canada's uh, draft uh, comes around, probably won't for some time, even if we do get to a war. Anyway, that's all of that. Now, let me take you over here. I want to finish up bonds, and I think I'll do the Excel version of bonds. Now, if, the, if you do it by the methods of formulas, it can get really tedious. It gets tedious real fast with bonds. And what you can do is Take my Excel sheet. This is a student view. And you're going to go in to your files. And you go down here to spreadsheets. Where the heck are the spreadsheets? Is that what they are? I am in Business 100. No, yeah, or uh, FIL 240. Yeah, I'm in. 240. Where are my spreadsheets? They just disappeared. Um, oh, there they are. This. Okay, now, this one at the top, bond calculations. That's the one that has two templates on one worksheet. And these will do most of your problems. They can do the calculations if you just follow their advice. Now, allow me. I'll leave that up there. Now I'm going to give you the basic outline of bonds again, just how they look. Okay, here we go. You're going to have, obviously, a ticker symbol. But there are going to be some hallmark parameters. The face value of the bond. It is always $1,000. Always. For our purposes. That's the... However, one Excel pain in the butt is that it wants everything as a quote at the tenth of the price. So on the hundred, that's a hundred dollars. Now on one of the two templates, 
you can put a thousand. You should put a thousand. But on the other one, it has to be a quote, a hundred. On the hundred. Now the next thing you're going to want, you're going to have a coupon rate. Now that is the percentage that would come next, or the first thing you would see after the ticker symbol. Let's say it's $56. That means that this bond will pay $56 a year until the, day, day, uh, the date of maturity. It'll pay one last $56, and then it will pay the face value bond. Now, that would be one period per year. Bonds actually pay in two installments every year. So if it's two periods per year, it would be $28. You don't need to worry about that. All you do is set a one or a two. And quite truthfully, you're not going to get much of a difference if you put one instead of two. And then you will have maturity. That's usually stated as a year, let's say 2034. Now on one of the sheets, it wants a date of maturity. Now I've made it so that it is as painless as possible. And then on that same sheet, it wants a settlement. That's the day you buy the bond. The way you should do it is just set it to the date that we are now. So in other words, if we're at 1016, 2023, we would set that to 10-16-2034. You just have to do that. <coughs> now, these are the two parameters that you'll be calculating. You'll know one and you'll have to get the other. The price and the yield. Now this is sometimes called the required rate of return by the investors. What they want the coupon to be. It won't be that, but that's what they want. We call this yield, the YTM, the yield to maturity. There's also a YTC, yield to call. For a yield to call, all you do is change the maturity date to the call date. So in other words, if this, if this bond was callable in, 2020, in 2028, let's say, then all you'd do to find the YTC would yield to call would just be to change the maturity date to 2028. That's all you'd do. Nothing big about that. Now you'll be given a price and you'll have to find a yield or you'll be given a yield and you'll have to find a price. Now watch. 
suppose that I find that right now investors are posting the yield to maturity at 5.25%. We would need to find the price. Now this coupon is paying 5.25%. Six percent. Let me write that down. Five point six zero percent. In other words, this bond is paying more than investors want. That will make investors happy. They will price this bond above par. Par is a thousand. So let's see the bond price. Now you've got a thousand. You don't need to change that ever. The annual coupon rate is 5.6%. The yield to maturity is 5.25. It's due 2034, which is already there. Now this is the term how long the bond has left. It will self-calculate for you. It will self-calculate. Now, you can make this a one for one coupon payment a year, or you can make it a two. It really won't change the answer too much. Right now, the bond is selling at Selling at a premium to par. When the yield is less than the coupon, then the bond will sell at a premium to par above a thousand dollars. Conversely, if the rate, if the market wants a yield higher than the coupon, then the bond will sell at a discount to par. In other words, less than a thousand. Well, let's see that. Suppose that investors said 5.75% or 5.60% isn't enough. We'd like to see 5.95%. Watch what happens to the price. Oops, I meant, I didn't mean to do that. I did the wrong one. Yield to maturity. Suppose that the yield to maturity is, let's say, 5.95%. Watch what happens to the price. It goes to the little par, 97, 972, 33. It will always work that way. All you have to do is put in the right numbers. 
and you'll be fine. Put the numbers in the right places. <coughs> now watch what happens if the coupon is broken into two, every, two, one every six months. You'll notice that the price doesn't really change a lot. Did you see that? Probably didn't even see it. It's very, it's a minimal. That's why on a quiz or an exam, I don't specify whether it's annual or semi-annual coupon payments because I'll put a range in there that'll accommodate, accommodate either one you decide to use. Now the other side of it is a true uh, beauty, but it requires a little more input, thought input. Suppose that the bond Right now, we see a price of 1040 $1,040.50. Find the yield to maturity. That's the right-hand template. Now, you'll have to put in the, the now I have made it so that it will post today's date. You can override that. You can type in another date if you want the settlement to be other than today. The maturity, you have to key that in. If you're given the year, then all you do is put it exactly the same date that many years in the future. This one you have to put in. You just put in like it's 10 16 2023 on the now. You'd put in 10 16 2034. That's the only thing that you have to just think, think about. Just put in as the maturity, that, that year of maturity. And as far as the month and day go, just put those the same as you did in the settlement. From there, put in your coupon. Now here's where you have to watch it. Everything, for some reason, Excel wants everything on the 100 in this part. And I put it in there on the 100. So in other words, a $1,000 face value is 100 on the 100. It's a tenth. The number of coupons per year, that's one or two. It's your choice. Realistically, two, but you can use one. Now, the quote has to be on the hundred. So in this case, you will see I put in a quote of 104.50. What you could do there is you could actually just say equals 1,040. 0.50 and again equals 1040.50 divided by 10. You don't want to think I don't want to think about it. Just remember that it has to be a tenth of the price. And there's your Uncle Bob. As you can see, it calculates the yield. 5.16%. Well, sure enough, the bond sold at a premium to par, so that means that the yield, less than the coupon, premium to par. 
say mechanics. So in this one, 5.16%. Now suppose that the bond price was 970.20. This time all I have to do is put in a new quote on the 100. 9 equals 970.20 divided by 10. And there it is, 6.03. Sure enough, the bond was selling at a discount to par. That means that the yield had to be bigger than the coupon, which it was. In a way, this is sort of a little bit of a self-checking system. You see what it should be and compare that to what you get. In this case, yeah, it's selling at a discount to par, so the yield should be higher than the coupon, and sure enough, it comes out to be that way. And again, notice that if I change that from one coupon payment a year to two, it really doesn't change it much. The yield is one basis point lower. So I give enough latitude on quizzes and exams that you could use either one and get it right. So technically, the correct answer would be 6.02. So I put a range in there, 6.01 to 6.03 so that you could get it right in any of uh, you get it marked correct for any you know, either answer. That is all there is to finding price and yield. And you can mess around a little bit with the, if you want to play with the settlement and overwrite that, just remember not to save it. Because I'll make on a quiz or an exam, it will be just this straightforward. All you have to do is pull up the, this one sheet and you'll be able to answer a find the price given the yield and find the yield given the price. That's all there is to that part. Now there's one more thing about bonds. Or a real world thing about bonds. When you get a quote from a broker on a bond, that's called a clean quote, C-L-E-A-N, clean quote. It's not what you'll pay. You'll pay the dirty. It's a dirty quote. Let me explain. Suppose that the bond paid a coupon right here. Now, six months later, that's 180 days, it pays its next coupon. So, in this case, there would be a $28 coupon paid here and a $28 coupon paid here. Now, you'll buy this bond in the secondary market. Some other investor owned it, now sells it. 
Suppose that the settlement happens, let's say 40 days after the coupon has been paid. In other words, the investor who sold it to you had earned 40 days of interest. So technically, he gets $28 times 40 days over oh, 180 prorated. If you work that out off a calculator, I take a $28 coupon and he earned 40 over 180 because he was the owner for 40 days. He gets $6.22 of interest. That would be the dirty, the quote, plus that prorated amount. So the dirty price, what you would actually pay for the bond, would be the quote, plus that prorated amount. A couple of things about this. One is, the lot of unsophisticated investors who buy bonds, they'll see the, well, you were deducted, this was deducted, the... $980 or whatever it is for you paid the price the quote on the bond and then you get this little extra charge of $6.22 and they'll say what the hell is it is this some kind of fee or something no that's the uh, prorated amount of the next coupon that belongs to the guy that you bought the bond from and so it just happens that way the dirty notice that as the days go along since a coupon that extra, that prorated amount increases. That's why it's probably as good a, a good idea to buy your bonds relatively soon after a coupon has been paid because that's when they'll be almost the clean price. As you get farther and farther along toward the next coupon, the dirty price begins to get a little bit noticeable. If you bought that 179 days after the last coupon, that would be nearly $28 more on the, a, a dirty price than the clean price. So you just you kind of keep that in mind when you're buying bonds. Just see when the last coupon was paid. If it was paid very recently, well, your dirty price is going to be a little higher. But if that coupon was paid months before, then that dirty price is going to be quite a bit higher than the clean price. So you want to keep that in mind at all times when you're buying bonds. The quote is not what you'll pay. And it will be more not what you pay the longer after a coupon that you buy a bond in the secondary market. That is how to do bonds. And that would be 
my expectations of you for a quiz or for the final exam. Can you do this? If you can do this, well, you've got, looks like you're a genius, you've got points for some kind of robust problems. Which weren't that bad. Now, as I've mentioned before, don't save over your template. If you want to save your work, save it under a different name so that you don't overwrite the, uh, oh, let me point out something. And the color code tells you what's calculated, where you don't put anything, and where you enter values. So always keep an eye on that right there. Uh, so that you don't overwrite something that might be of use to you. Anyhow. Um, hmm. Something I was just thinking about. Try something here. No, can't do it. I was thinking if there was a way that you could embed some code. I can't do it here. I could do it, but not in the simple one. If you could embed code that would quote dirty. In other words, something that would happen so that your price would include that prorated amount of the coupon. I didn't do it in here, and it's not going to be something that I ask you about on an exam. So I'll just let it hang. <coughs> anyway, enough of that. Time to go on to risk and return. Now this topic, I've gone through it before, to some extent, on several occasions. But now we hit it head on. One of the most important underlying principles of finance, the relationship between risk and return. Now, as I've said uh, before, I mentioned in our business, in, in almost any context in which you would talk about risk, whether it is in straight-up finance or in ri uh, risk management and insurance, or even in uh, some places in production operations management, risk is usually means, in a somewhat technical sense, the possible outcome. How many are there and how different they are? Number of possible outcomes. How many there are and how different they are. Madam, I should like you to use this on me. Fire right here. <laughs> okay. Number of possible outcomes. Not much risk of my beard, which is well trimmed and oiled. Ah, that you're not finished yet. Sorry. Okay. 
Okay, now, come back up, right where you were, fire. You got it in my beard. <laughs> Sorry. You got it very close to my navel. You understand what is, that means. The second one is greater risk because there are more possible outcomes. An outcome that could damage the Cremo beard oil that I used this morning. There was no risk at all of that. Oh, but there was risk. of that happening in the second one. The variety of outcomes. And in fact, the droplet sizes were smaller, so there were more possible outcomes. And some of those presented substantial risk. And that is the whole basis of risk analysis, is what those possible outcomes are and how bad they could be. So we go from there to the next point. Risk in finance, and this is somewhat unusual to finance, has two parts for us. In general, in science, biology, physics, engineering, uh, and all those uh, subjects, even in production operations uh, management, Risk is one thing, and it is typically measured by the standard deviation, sigma, the square root of the variance. And we can do that very easily on a calculator, but definitely in Excel. You just give it the data, and it will find the variation. The problem in that is there's a small problem. There are actually two standard deviations. One is the population standard deviation, and one is the sample standard deviation. Almost never will we collect the population data. So that means all we're calculating, collecting is a sample uh, standard deviation. So, now in Excel, if you just say equals STDEV, open parenthesis, that will get you the sample. If you want the population standard deviation, if you have collected the data of the whole population, then you would use equals STDEV.P, open parenthesis. You would probably not in almost any circumstance, practically speaking, put the dot P in there. If I wanted to find the weight, uh, I take a, all the people in this class and weigh you, then that standard deviation would be a sample of the population. A biased sample, quite, uh, quite notably, but it would be a sample. So when I was calculating the mean and the standard deviation, the average and standard deviation, I would just say equals STDEV and then give them the array of the weights that I took. Just a small side matter in this. Now, here's the next thing. 
as I said, in finance, we make a distinction. You see, the standard deviation is risk. And this is the total risk. However, we make a distinction. There is part of the risk that is in the system. We call it systematic risk. And then there is a part that is not in the system. It's peculiar to that data on its own. We call this, uh, this, this term has just shown up in the last 10 years in textbooks. The standalone risk is the, the risk of that company. It has two parts. The risk that inheres to its participation in the world, in the market. And then there is a part of the risk, which is oftentimes rather notable, that is just peculiar to that company. It's not in the system. It is it's similar, similar to this. You, sir, come to me and you have a big nodule on your nose. Well, that's weird. We can just take that off. It's non-systematic. We can remove it. But then later you tell me, well, I have these nodules all over inside me because it's my family. We have this. That's systematic risk. That's in your system. I can't get rid of that. Certainly not as easily. So that would be something very different from something that is on the surface that we can take <coughs> off. And that's the way it is with stock returns. Part of that risk, we can make it go away. All we have to do is find other stocks that have other non-systematic risks. It's like health insurance. When you are sick, you may not be sick or not perfectly correlated illnesses. So those, if I put your health care package together, together, well, you're canceling out part of each other's non-systematic risk. There will be an underlying risk because you're both humans. But part of that risk is just you, and part of that risk is you. You, madam, are an arsonist. You, sir, are a serial killer. And you, madam, you are a bank robber. Well, you see, that's pretty bad because if he's a bank robber too, put the two of you together, and I've got a lot of problem here. But if I put together, you together with those two, when you rob a bank, you're not setting a fire, and you're not out there offing someone. You see how I am dampening out the peculiar risk. And when you are out setting a fire, well, she's, uh, you're not robbing a bank, or doing anything like that, or killing anyone, you're not robbing a bank. So, well, maybe, you know, well, let's set fire to this bank that I robbed. 
Maybe, but the point I'm making though is that as you add more people, the peculiar risks tend to cancel each other out. This is how health insurance works. And this, was, this is one of the great hilarious problems that insurance companies still think they, uh, about this. You see, if I decide, well, I'm going to insure, help do health insurance only for this certain subpopulation. Well, what I am doing is I am guaranteeing that the other subpopulations who wouldn't be exposed to that particular subpopulation's illnesses, I'm not getting that cancellation effect. Well, we don't insure this kind of people because they have higher incidence of heart attack. Yes, but they have a lower incident, incidence of illnesses that are inherent to the subpopulation that I am insuring. So the more we globalize or nationalize, the more we are including subpopulations that cancel out each other's non-systematic risks. That's a principle of insurance and it's also in stocks. Individual companies' stocks are volatile as hell. And Big, okay, give you an example. See that little chart right there? Microsoft. Microsoft, of its total stand, uh, standard deviation, about 60% of it, from data I've seen, is non-systematic. You're riding risk that you have no reason to ride. All you have to do is put it into a portfolio with stocks that have volatility characteristics uncorrelated or with low correlation and you cancel it out. That's why in our business we don't use Sigma. We use, surprise, surprise, Beta. Beta measures only systematic risk. It assumes you're not too so stupid that you're taking risk on its own. Beta means nothing if you're going to buy one stock. Beta is just going to tell you what the risk would have been if you had been intelligent and bought a portfolio. That's the whole thing about this systematic risk is that the market doesn't reward stupid. We are greedy. We will put our money only on risks that can't be removed. If you want to take further risks, hey, that's your thing. You know, you've got your, you got your reasons, but that don't cry when that go, stock is going up and down. Boy, that goes up and down a lot for a beta of 0 0.40. Yeah, Cupcake, because it is not, it is standing there on its own. You're a pretty good person when you're in a crowd. But I take you on your own, and I don't know what you're going to do next. You? I mean, I could take you to a nice, dignified party where a lot of people were around, you'd probably be okay. But if you were on your own, you'd probably be diving into a mosh pit somewhere. You know, and saying, Nickelback forever, for God's sake, you're so high. Okay, or something like that. Uh, 
but you know what I mean. It's, it's just this craziness. Stocks are not tame. We in our business don't reward stupid. We just, you know, we might contribute to charities or something like that because those people are down and out on their luck. But we assume that in our business, if you're going to walk into our lion's den, you've got the right armor on to handle a lion who, I'm going to eat you and then I'm going to pick my teeth with your bones. You're ready for it. So that's why in, we care only in our business about the systematic part of the risk. Now the question is, how would I know what stocks to put together in a portfolio to lower, to get that non-systematic risk down? Now understand, you can't get rid of all of it unless you own the world frickin' portfolio. But if you get about 30 stocks, you've gotten rid of, if, they're, if, they're, if it's well designed, and I'm going to show you that now in just a minute here. But if it's well designed, you can get rid of about 95% of it. Or you can buy an ETF or a mutual fund. The ETFs have already diversified. They've already got enough stocks to kill off each other's non-systematic risk. That's why they are a very good idea, even for wealthy investors, for sophisticated investors. Unless those sophisticated investors are getting inside information, I tell them, look, ETFs are the way you should do this. Then you're playing the market, but you're not playing it stupid because you've got funded managers that are in the background or making sure stupid isn't part of their uh, planning strategy. Let me show you. I always do this, and I bookmark this, and then it goes away. Well, no, let me do this. Come on, they keep putting these ads in, and they kick out my stuff. Where's my stuff? Get Amazon dismissed. Come on, it's driving me crazy. I'll have to go to Google and get it again. Now I'll put up the link to this in the scrolling marquee. No, that didn't work. PortfolioVisualizer.com. What this will do is this will show you the correlation coefficients among the stocks that you give it to look at. Now, my, my threshold is about 0.30 for correlation coefficients. Let's put in some here. Let's put in um, General Motors, Pfizer, PFE, Google, Tesla, Walmart, 
Lockheed Martin, Facebook, is Facebook, no, let's put in Kellogg, or whatever they call it now, they split into two companies, Kellogg and, um, put in Kroger. Now, leave the rest of it alone, you can tinker with those if you want, but this is just a basic correlation matrix. And obviously along the diagonal, it's one, and there are mirror images on the diagonal. So looking at General Motors, against itself obviously one. But against Pfizer, it's only 0.19 good stocks to have in a portfolio together. They do not reinforce each other's peculiarities. GM against Google, that's a little, that's odd to me. It's 0.33. Sometimes it makes all the sense in the world why the correlation is high. Correlation coefficient is high. But this one, I got nothing. Walmart against car company against a, uh, a uh, consumer goods retailer. See, that's a low correlation. GM against Lockheed. That's a little on the high side, but it's still well more than tolerable. And against... Um, what do they call it? Kelanova. It's not Kellogg anymore, it's Kelanova. Well, GM against Kelanova, that's low. And against Kroger, low. And those make sense. So, basically, it's a, a General Motors, obviously you wouldn't want to put that with Tesla. See that correlation coefficient right there? And against Google, you probably wouldn't want to put it there either. That's kind of weird, but you know. Okay, Pfizer against GM, low, on itself one. Okay, against Pfizer against Google, that's good. And against Pfizer against Tesla, virtually no correlation at all. That's, that's really good. And it makes sense too. Pfizer against Walmart, and it's still low, but, is, but against Pfizer against Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Martin is a defense company. Uh, I can't figure that out. 0.34. That's, that's too high. You don't need to do it, so you wouldn't do that. Against uh, Kelanova, low. And against Kroger, pretty low. So you can see the ones, yes, no, yes, no. You can sort of craft a portfolio. Against uh, Google, Alphabet. Uh, obviously against GM, it's, uh, we've already seen it's high, that's weird. Against Pfizer, it's okay. Now over here against Tesla, okay, it's, it's decent. It's not low, low correlation, but it's okay. Against Walmart, obviously, Google and Walmart don't have much in common at all. And against the other ones, against Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Martin is showing that it it's a little bit, well, that's okay. And then against uh, Kelanova and Kroger, it's fine. Now, get Tesla here. Tesla is, oh, it's good against a lot of things. Tesla, the only thing it's not good with is G GM. Now, Walmart. Ooh, look at that. Walmart and Kroger, well, that makes sense. They're correlated too much. You don't want, 
they're obviously both consumer retailers, so they would tend to both be affected by the economy about the same way. And then Lockheed Martin against Kelanova. I just can't figure that one out. That one's weird, but you just don't want to put them together in a portfolio. And then Kelanova against Kroger. That's and against Lockheed Martin. Kelanova against Kroger does make sense. They're both in basics, selling basic stuff. Kroger, basic general goods, general foods. And uh, Kellogg, that's what they make. This is how you do the correlations, use them. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do this at all. You just go in here, and if you decide, I'm going to just start putting stocks together into my own portfolio. The hell with ETFs. I'm going to do this myself. You can certainly at least do this. Okay, I'll start with a couple of stocks that have very low correlation against each other. And then I work my way from there to see what I can do. Now, one thing that uh, a common, well, it's not common, but one strategy is to find what's called a T-stock or a pivot stock. One that you just see is not correlated with much of anything too well. And, and that sort of starts you out. And then find one that it has a low correlation coefficient against, and then another one. You build out from one that it seems to be kind of on its own. Doesn't seem to be responsive to others. And with a positive correlation. In this event, if I'm looking across here, I don't know. I don't really see one. Kroger seems to be no no against Kelanova and against Walmart. Kelanova. Nope. Lockheed Martin. Nope, two. Should have chosen better. Actually, Walmart. The only one that it is correlated with is another grocery store chain. And that makes sense. Okay, you buy Walmart, you wouldn't go for other grocery stocks. Let, let me see if uh, Alphabet, Google. Right, it seems to be actually pretty immune. Except the GM. So you wouldn't want to have Wal uh, Walmart with, or rather Google, with GM. I'm looking across here. Pfizer actually isn't too bad. No. Well, yeah, it's got only one. Yeah, General Motors. The only one it's against is Tesla. So you could choose Tesla or you could choose General Motors, but those would be, you would pick one of them, not both of them, as a key. And then stay away, from, once you chose that, stay away from the auto industry for your next investments. But that's, you're seeing kind of the underlying, did you hear I was just kind of talking to myself as I was going along there? That's how we think about it. And hey, this is actually a professional way to do it. It's just not to grab stocks because your friend said it was a great idea, but to think forward about what comes next. That's what everything is in our business. Not what is, what will come next. 
And so this is one of those, what would come next if I put these two stocks together? Well, one goes down, the other goes down with it. Well, surprise, surprise, they had a high correlation coefficient. But if you get them with low correlation coefficients, one goes down, it's not as likely that the other will take the dive with it. Gives you an idea of what we do. And that's all I have for you today. I thank you. <laughs>